Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Our food system has worked in the same way, especially for low-income individuals, where companies have said, let's make these food products that tap into our innate needs for sugar, fat, and salt. And then we're going to give it to people. And then let's see what happens. So what happens, of course, people eat the food and they're like, well, this made me feel really good. It's giving me all of these different rewards. And so I'm going to go back for more because it's easily accessible. It's right there. And these companies are now saying, oh, you must really like that. I'm going to make it readily available everywhere for you. Meanwhile, pushing everything else out. listeners welcome back to another episode of the look up podcast i'm your host mark weinstein as always huge debt of gratitude for those of you that have been listening along for over a year now nearly 50 episodes complete thank you to those of you that support the show through patreon thank you for those of you subscribe to the look up podcast newsletter thanks for all of the love and reaching out with suggestions and questions and guest recommendations Really just so happy to have this community uh, behind this show and appreciate you all greatly. Never hesitate to reach out to me, marc at thelookuppodcast.com. If there's anything that you'd like to discuss, a <clears throat> little bit of a cold today, so I feel like my voice is a bit raspy, but it is August 29th, 2020, and I'm coming at you live from France here. I had a wonderful conversation only two days ago with today's guest, Eve Turo-Paul. Eve is an author and globally recognized thought leader who focuses on the intersection of food culture, the digital age, and well-being by blending qualitative and quantitative methods. Her most recent book, Hungry, Avocado Toast, Instagram Influencers, and Our Search for Connection and Meaning, Oh, I love that. I love that title. Um, it's super interesting. And we dove into some of the subject matter that she covers in the book, including what she refers to as diet tribes. Uh, think, you know, your your paleo friend or your vegan friend who is there to uh, convince you of the dogmatic diet that they he or she may consume on a regular basis. We talk about COVID and how it's emphasized the bifurcation of our country um, and other countries by class, specifically in relation to food access and nutrition access, how our food system is highly connected to socioeconomic justice, as well as the issue of climate change. We discuss anxiety, loneliness, and how that affects our eating habits. And we also speak about our body's craving for nature and sensory input. Um, really enjoyed this episode. It's great to have powerful women on this show. Uh, we actually start off the episode with a discussion about being a mother and working and writing and doing all of that in the backdrop of the COVID pandemic. And I just have to say for all of you mothers out there, just so, so, so 
incredibly grateful and impressed and blown away by all that you do, including uh, the mothers in my family. Love you all who I think are listening here. All right. Well, that's it from me. Um, I also did my first solo episode last week. So if you enjoyed that, uh, let me know. I would definitely love to do more. I, I certainly enjoyed sharing uh, one of my favorite stories from the Mahabharata with you and my general sentiment on the current global political, economic, social, cultural climate uh, that we're all living in today. Blessings. Have a wonderful day wherever you are, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Eve, thank you so much for coming on the Look Up podcast. Um, super appreciated. I was really happy uh, when I heard from you, um, you know, your your book and the research that you're doing for Hungary is super aligned with some of the topics that uh, I like to learn about on this show. And, um, you know, I just, I just can't wait to dive into some of those, some of the subject matter there. But for starters, we were just chatting about getting set up. So you have an 11, 11 month old daughter. Yes. She is going to be a year in a few weeks, which I can't believe. Oh my God. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just been a crazy year you know, becoming a mom and then, and then all of this, you know, pandemic madness happening and on top of, um, releasing a book, starting a nonprofit. It's just, it's just been a madhouse here. (laughs) It's unbelievable. And I, I'm just so blown away by parents. (laughs) I mean, I know that might sound, that might sound really juvenile, but I feel overwhelmed in my day-to-day life without children. And then I look at like my sister who has two kids and I'm just like, how do you do it? I mean, Eve, how do you do it? How do you do all of these things and take care of a life, steward a life into this world? It's, it's well, for me, I, I, I'll be honest, for me, it's been a complete blessing uh, mm-hmm. to have her as something to focus on. Um. Mm-hmm. She keeps me very centered. It keeps me paying attention to this moment because if you're not paying attention to her, she, I mean, she changes in an instant and you're going to (laughs) do something. Uh, And I think these days it's been, it's been a real blessing to have a healthy child. I think I am most impressed and um, sad for, uh, parents who can't be with their kids right now. Like I can't, I really just can't imagine being a parent who has to go to work, who is one of these essential workers and is leaving their kids at home alone, or who's a parent of a child of color and going through the pandemic and this racial justice revolution, and then not having the support of the school system. It's like all of these things piled up, honestly. Like, so, you know, it's like, there's like this hierarchy of people who are like looking at others being like, how do you do it? So I'm looking at those parents being like, how the heck do you do it? Yeah, I guess. Get out of bed in the morning and, you know, keep yourself together. Resilience. It's just astounding. I guess there's, um, you know, there's always so many, I guess there's always 
someone to look up to. Exactly. Exactly. Um, be like, hey, if know, they can do it, I can do it. If you know, they're figuring yeah. it out somehow, and they're not, you know, uh, it's just. For but I sure. do think that this moment is challenging everybody's uh, resilience in a dozen different ways, and um, you know, it, this is not to say that that it it. it disqualifies the struggles of any one person over another. I think every person is grieving and struggling individually on so many different levels right now, and all of them are valid. Um, but for me, it does help keep some perspective to be like, you know, I don't have quite as much on my plate <laughs> as a lot of others do right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to hone in on something that you actually referenced here. I, I thought this might be a good place for us to open and not disappointed. Um, speaking about kind of racial justice and essential workers and equity, um, you know, it is it is this kind of strange bifurcation of society that we're seeing, or not strange. It's it's the it's the transparent bifurcation of society yeah. that has always already and al- always existed. Now made so obvious because yeah. blue collar workers are being forced to literally go into work or cannot go into work and therefore are, are out of jobs. And then right. white collar workers are, you know, the Zoom class. They're, right, exactly. They're, here we are recording a podcast and I feel also equally blessed um, to be able to work. And, you know, I, I don't have children, so I'm lucky I would like to have children one day. I think they're a blessing. Um, and I would absolutely love that. I'd love to be a dad. But... Um, <laughs> But I just can't imagine, and I wanted to tie it in with your work because, you know, the parents that have to leave their children home alone because they're going to work and potentially are, you know, they're living in a lower socioeconomic um, bracket and their kids often are getting at least one meal a day from the school system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... You know, like that is, that to me is, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy, right? To think about, um, is that something that you've looked into in, in your work? Yeah. So, I mean, the work that I have been dedicating myself to over the last 10 years or so is very much focused on popular food culture and the impact of technology and well-being. So I've been looking at what it is that young people today are spending their discretionary time and money on. And uh, really with a a strong focus in the food space, because young people are spending so much time and money on food these days Um, and and investigating what emotional needs, what emotional drivers are behind those decisions. And for the most part, most of that writing and work has focused on middle to upper class individuals. And this is something that I have talked to a number of my clients about, actually, because uh, as a friend just said to me, I essentially am an academic who tries to get paid to do my research. (laughs) Um, I just go really uh, deep on certain subjects and and hope that I can find companies who are willing to pay me for it. Um, But I've actually struggled to find data even on the eating habits of low-income individuals. And instead, what I face when I talk to a lot of my clients about that demographic is this assumption that they know what they want to eat. Um, you know, you're, you you briefly mentioned that, you know, right now we have this, the bifurcation of our food system, or these two realities of our food system that have always existed, always, are just now coming into people's 
realities more clearly. Um, it's just harder to ignore it right now. You know, if, if you are of the privilege to have been able to just kind of look in the other direction, now it's just less easy to do that. It's in your face. Uh, and I think that one of the ways that this is presenting itself in this current conversation has to do with climate and sustainability and mm. access to good food. Um, there are so many different elements to this that are integral to human health and planetary health. And I'm actually quite hopeful um, based on the conversations that I have been hearing that things are going to change. You know, you're mentioning that a lot of kids these days are getting their food at school, which is true. Um, you know, a lot of those students were also going hungry at night. Um, and so I think that this is putting a spotlight on the ridiculous number of people in this country who go hungry every day, who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Uh, and, and I hope that this is a moment for all of us to be rethinking the reality that we've just accepted. <laughs> Uh, for far too long. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a strange world. It's a strange country. Um, the U S you know, 20, I think the statistics are something like 23 million Americans live in food insecurity. And for the listeners, food insecurity is, uh, essentially you have access to calories, but you don't have access to nutrition. So, you know, like you don't have fresh produce in certain areas of this country. There's, there's, it's basically just fast food deserts. Um, and so 13 million of those 23 are actually children as well, which is, which is wild, especially because we have so much food waste also in our country. I think 30 plus percent of food um, goes to waste. And Eve, please correct me on any of these things if I'm, if I'm speaking um, out of line. But Given that, uh, you know, how, I guess, how have you seen, I know most of your work focuses on, on kind of upper middle class to, to, you know, wealthy suburban families and individuals, specifically millennials. Um, but kind of what have you seen post COVID in terms of the shifting landscape for food, mm -hmm. potentially food resiliency in America? Yeah. So there's a few different things that are happening. Mm. Um, I'd say there's two kind of core conversations that I've been following that I have uh, that I'm most interested in. So one uh, is a conversation about what the impact of the food system has been on increasing those quote comorbidities in communities of color, uh, namely heart disease and diabetes. And when you look at those diseases that are making so many people more vulnerable to uh, coronavirus, those are two things that are caused by and large by the foods that we eat. <laughs> um, it is driven forward by that lack of food access that you were talking about, um, both actual physical access, right? Like, are those products even available in your grocery store? But then um, also monetary access, right? Is it even within your budget, within your means to be eating things that wouldn't cause diabetes and heart disease? Um, and then on top of that, you have all the marketing budgets in these in the big food system that have been pushing these products to communities of color, um, and they're addictive. They taste really good. They're you know filled with sugar, salt, fat, um, and I think that it's 
it's something that has been, uh, again, easily ignored. And now we are seeing the ramifications of a food system that is set up that way on people's health and well-being. So I think that that's a really, uh, it's an interesting conversation. It's an important conversation. I am starting to hear more and more people discussing it. Um, it's, it's kind of just laying bare what the impact of a fast food soda filled diet is doing to people and the risk that it increases uh, in their lives. And also like how disproportionately it affects communities of color um, in the United States and also poorer communities elsewhere around the world as well. Um, so that's one important part of this. Um, and is a conversation that I hope continues to build. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I've been watching is this intersectional environmentalism movement. I don't know if you've been following this at all, but there's mm -hmm. a group of influencers uh, who have really like hit the ground running. They they had the seeds of this movement already in place, but with the death of George Floyd, they have moved forward, uh, and they're making their case very very clear that environmental justice is a racial justice issue, that so many elements of the climate crisis are going to disproportionately impact communities of color, communities in rural areas, those who are low income, um, and that addressing the climate is something that anyone who's marching in the streets for racial justice should also care about. Um, so those are kind of the two areas the two conversations that have been bubbling to the surface over the last few months that I have been following um, with great interest that are, it's just making me hopeful that this is entering uh, common conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And both of those um, are, are threads that we can pull on. Uh, the, the latter point is fascinating. I started working with a company called Steward about nine or 10 months ago. Um, and Steward is a company that provides access to capital to small and medium-sized sustainable farmers who are mostly selling locally. And when you really start to dig into the way that the financial system uh, enables the some of the problems with our food supply, uh, it's really interesting and it ties in with equity and justice. Uh, most of the access to capital in the agriculture space is tied to um, commodity crops mm -hmm. and, you know, sustainable farmers that are practicing ecologically friendly or climate smart practices are often boxed out. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is by even just by way of providing uh, being, you know, I guess the lubricant to get capital in the hands of these farmers that are left out of the system, we're realizing that it's also emergently in equity play because many yeah. of those farmers are also people of color or yeah. non-white and sometimes LGBTQ. And it's just interesting mm -hmm. how, how that works, right? Like the, the financial system itself is set up in a way that's exclusionary. Um, and to the point on env environmentalism, you know, like our, 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 the way that we grow our food, the way that our food system is financed is, having a massive impact on the climate. Yes. You know, reading about 60 years left of, of quality soil for harvesting. And, and that was published like three years ago. So it's really 57 years. 
and the clock is ticking and, and soil is a great way to sequester carbon yep. You know, who knows what's, as I'm learning about what's going into our bodies, it's just, it's wild. Yeah. So, I mean, I did this, you know, I've been doing this research on food behaviors from a marketing standpoint, really, and a human behavior standpoint for for about a decade. Um, Meanwhile, I am a millennial. I just became a mom. I deeply care about the environment. And about a year ago, I ended up merging these two interests together and I founded a nonprofit called the Food for Climate League. Uh, Because what I was finding during my interviews with young people about food was this story that was surfacing over and over again of people being like, well, why the heck should I save up my money for to buy a house that's probably going to be underwater? Why should I save up to raise a family when I don't know what kind of world I'm going to be leaving for them? This very apocalyptic, uh, outlook on life. And I was hearing this from people in San Francisco and in Seoul, in Korea. Um, And it was jarring and upsetting, but I also could really relate to it. My husband and I had a very long ongoing conversation about whether or not we were going to have kids for the same reason. Um, And then I was talking to my clients who were like, well, you know, we try to bake sustainable products and we put them in the market and no one buys them. And Uh, So I I founded the Food for Climate League essentially to be like, okay, there's a disconnect here. Where is that disconnect? And we have been doing uh, a number of research sprints that have been highly illuminating. Um, And part of the solution and part of the problem, well, part of the problem, I should say, is that a lot of these sustainability initiatives are so targeted to what I call the three W's white, Western, and wealthy individuals. Mm. And they're ignoring the rest of the world who also cares about these things, who could Mm. be taking a stand uh, and using food as a way to address the climate crisis, but at the same time celebrating a greater diversity of cultures, of culinary heritages, um, supporting their local farmers, protecting their natural resources. It's all of these win-win-win Win win wins. <laughs> yeah, win win win. You know, and eating more delicious, interesting food along the way. Um, it's just kind of mind boggling that we've ended up in the in the situation that we have when there is such a simple solution here and eating better food, even Instagram worthy food, brag worthy food, um, can be a way for us to address the climate crisis. And actually through food, food can have a bigger impact than taking all the cars off the planet. Yeah, it's, it's wild. I mean, I think agriculture is, is one of the largest carbon emitters, specifically the meat industry. Um, to your point, I guess, my, how do we, from, from your research, like where, what, what are the pain points that you're finding from transitioning away from this WWW model? Because I guess just just to add some clarity to that question, like, you know, it is it is it is the wealthy individuals in New York and San Francisco who are voting with their wallets Mm -hmm. and, you know, buying locally sourced, regeneratively produced or sustainably produced product. But that product goes at such a premium, it seems. So how do we provide food that is both economical and nutritional? And so, environmentally friendly. <laughs> yeah. So that that there actually is there's a fairly simple solution to this. The reason why 
food companies and farmers have not gotten on board is because we're making a lot of false assumptions about what people want. Um, I will give you, uh, I think the best example actually is internet use. Okay. So the way that, let's say Facebook is, <laughs> the, how, the way that Facebook's algorithm works yes. is if you go onto Facebook and you see a story about the Amazon wildfires or a terrorist attack somewhere, um, we actually, as individual, as, as human beings, um, we crave knowledge in order to keep ourselves safe. That's just like an evolutionary baseline. And so when we see a story about something terrible that's happened, right, it's like looking at the accident that's on the highway. You don't want to look, but you want to look. Mm -hmm. uh, we click on those stories because there is something inside of us that's saying you need to know about what's happening in order to protect yourself. Okay, the algorithm then is like, oh, Eve really likes to read about terror attacks and natural disasters. I'm going to show her more stories about this. Then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get more stories about it. I'm going to feel even more terrified, more scared, which is going to make me even likelier to continue clicking on those stories to make yes. me try to collect more knowledge, to make me feel like maybe I'm doing something to keep myself safe. Okay. Our food system has worked in the same way, especially for low-income individuals, where companies have said, let's make these food products that tap into our innate needs for sugar, fat, and salt. And then we're going to give it to people. And then let's see what happens. So what happens, of course, people eat the food and they're like, well, this made me feel really good. It's giving me all of these different rewards. And so I'm going to go back for more because it's easily accessible. It's right there. And these companies are now saying, oh, you must really like that. I'm going to make it readily available everywhere for you. Meanwhile, pushing everything else out. Um, we're now at this point where I, I am hoping at least that a number of companies are start starting to look up and be like, is that what people want? And I think that the biggest indicator of this actually is that the is the vegan movement. Mm. Now, this does not fit the three W mechanism. Of, of white, wealthy, and Western, uh, the largest population of vegans in the United States is the African-American community. Really? That is not something that anybody thinks off the top no, of their head. No, I, I would never have guessed. 3% of the United States uh, is vegan, 8% of African-Americans. According oh. to, I think it was Gallup, I got that from, and then it's also been reiterated by Data Central. I actually ran an original, a separate study with Data Central last year. We found the same thing. Um, so, yeah, it's more than twice the number um, in the African-American community. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, part of it is taking back control over people's health and well-being. They're pushing back against that system of, of fast food uh, of the sugar, salt, fat combinations um, that are driving up those rates of, of diabetes and heart disease. But it's also an appreciation of people's culinary heritages. Most people around the world eat a plant-based diet. Uh, and so if you want to celebrate the heritage of your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, chances are you're not going to be eating a meat-heavy diet. Um, so there are these signs of change that uh, I'm hoping companies also start to, to look at those populations and they're like, oh, we, we can make money doing this too. We can make money providing nutritious plant-based food to a wider community. Absolutely. And, and it's fascinating because it, it's kind of similar when we talk about environment and food, 
you know, like what's led to the decline or the declining oil industry has not been top-down kind of guidance and regulation. It's actually been the acceleration of the reduction in cost of new technology like solar. Right. right. And so it is, it is ironically these, not ironically, but because I sometimes question like capitalism um, on this show and it is the economic incentive that's driving these companies towards better behavior now mm-hmm. because they know that they could actually make money doing it. It's not some top-down regulation, which is, which is interesting to think about. Um, yeah. I, I mean, our, our goal with the food for climate league is mm-hmm. to work with businesses to make foods that are good for people, good for planet, mm-hmm. also good for businesses, bottom lines. And that's because we understand at least that's my perspective that money is the core motivator here. And I think that it's going to happen, especially considering the administration that we have in office right now. Um, Mm -hmm. My own personal skepticism of what lays in the future. Um, I think that that business has the greater potential to create change than regulation or deregulation or even changes to the farm bill. Not that those things are not important. I think that they're critical. We might be waiting a long time, though, if that's what we're relying on as a lever. And in the meantime, there are a lot of people who want to be eating more nutritious, more interesting foods that celebrate their communities, that celebrate their heritages, that are giving them more energy, greater immunity, and that are really freaking delicious. So why not do it now? <laughs> so let's, how, how, what role do you think social media, the rise of social media has played in the proliferation of diet? consciousness or or more kind of healthy eating habits? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been extremely influential. Um, There are a lot of different facets of kind of food and social media culture. There is one part of it, which is I'm going to show off whatever I've made. Like, look at, check out my avocado toast, check out the banana bread. Uh, I would say, you know, pre-COVID, most food media was there to brag. We've entered this new world right now of food on social media where people are actually like supporting one another and providing tips. And I think it's been this beautiful way to create a sense of community. Um, I do think it's actually broken down some of the socioeconomic barriers because there's a lot of people who are just trying to figure out like, how do I manage on a budget, not going to the grocery store as often, relying on dried beans, dried rice, making your own bread, using every single bit of the produce that you have. Um, And I think that it's just so weird because I think that social media to me has always been this like kind of, I don't know, evil place (laughs) that churns jealousy. And since COVID, it's like, we're all in, we're not all in the same boat, but we're again, like going back to the beginning, we're all grieving, we're all suffering, we're all trying to figure out how to live in this new normal. Um, there's been this really kind of beautiful community centric culture that has evolved online, um, as it relates to food. It's been just one of the few ways for people to connect. Um, but prior to COVID, I'd say the other way that food has been, or social media has been a conduit to community building in food culture was through diet culture, Mm -hmm. um, right. People who are like, I'm paleo, so I'm going to you know, post on the paleo Reddit boards, I'm going to follow these certain influencers. Um, and 
I, I've over the last few years, I've done a deep dive into these, what I call diet tribes. Yes. Um, I wanted to get into that. So this yeah. Is great. You know, people who are craving community, they want to find others who have a similar belief system. Um, and social media has allowed people to create those communities and find people who, you know, perhaps they wouldn't ever have access to um, without, uh, without those platforms available. Yeah. And, and I think, I think, you know, when I've, I've explored social media, it has both the, you know, it has the power of connectivity and the power to bring us together in community, which can be really, really great. But as you described the algorithms and some of the envy um, and, you know, bragocious driven culture of social media, I think it's, it's this like two-sided being, it represents kind of the, the shadow and the light in, in humanity. Yeah. It's just a technology yeah. that amplifies the best and worst in us. Um, I want to stick with the community building thread. You know, what what have you seen uh, among among these diet tribes? What sort of, of behaviors have you kind of researched that are prevalent? Yeah, so for my... My latest book, I actually went to a vegan speed dating event in New York (laughs) City, which was really fun. Um, But it was super interesting to talk to the people there about, you know, why is it that they felt like it was important to date another vegan? Um, It was really interesting to hear people talk uh, negatively about vegetarians and to learn (laughs) about the, the inner group conflict there um, to also talk about vegans, like further breaking vegans down into subgroups of vegans who are eating that way because of the environment or eating that way because of animal rights. And then you get into animal rights versus animal welfare. It was just like, in terms of a sociological look at human behavior, it is fascinating to watch how we try to find our group and then mm. we try to defi- to find our subgroup within the subgroup within the subgroup. And this has always happened through religion. Um, and in many ways, you know, what I have theorized is that because we are less likely to be going to our religious institutions, especially millennials and Gen Zers, um, we have less of those traditional kind of tribal support systems um, mm you know, we're not volunteering as much. We don't know our neighbors as well. We're not adhering to those religious institutions as closely. Um, We're not even adhering to like our cultural norms as closely, right? Thinking about immigrant populations who have, you know, assimilated. Um, People need to find their people somehow. Um, These days, you know, a lot of folks are doing that through food culture. Um, So, you know, veganism is one part of this. I've looked uh, pretty intensively at the paleo community as well. Yeah, I want to like, because paleo and vegan, right? Yeah. Like opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Because it's not about the food. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and uh, so I want to talk about that. And I, what's coming up for me is this question around, are these like religions because food science is just so immature still and we mm-hmm. just have conflicting data around mm-hmm. what is actually healthy and what isn't? Well, yes. I mean, actually, that's really interesting that you point that out. Um, there is no one right answer. And 
I guess it is like religion in some ways. Like we don't have evidence that one person's, you know, God is real and another person's God isn't, or, you know, that their concept of, um, of reality is wrong while another is right. We just don't know. And I think the same is true with food. Um, our understanding of the human body and the nutrients found within soil and uh, the animals that we eat and the plants that we eat is so immature. It's actually been quite shocking for me. Um, you know, research around the microbiome is just beginning. And what scientists are finding is that yes. the, the gut microbiome has way more to do with our health and well-being than calories. Um, and so I do think it's given kind of this open space for multiple forms of interpretation. But I think what's what's really important to recognize in these diets is a lot of the reasons why people adhere to these ways of eating is not is not because of the actual food itself. In some, in some cases it is, and people want to lose weight, um, for example, or they're trying to address some other health issue. But for most people, it's a lifestyle. It's an expression of someone's value systems. And there are plenty of people who were vegan and then go paleo, or who were paleo and then go vegan. Um, there's uh, a number of people who have written books who have been in the news who were vegan and then became butchers. Um, mm. You know, it's really about respecting human life and uh, having a philosophy that, you know, that dominant culture is getting it wrong and we need to start thinking about things differently. There's actually a lot of similarities between uh, the life philosophies shared by many in these vegan, vegetarian, and paleo communities. When, when I think about vegans, like the most hardcore vegans and the most hardcore paleo folks, the corollary for me is like really far left um, progressives and mm -hmm. really far right um individuals like i've always thought that the political spectrum was less of a line and more like a circle mm -hmm. where these two endpoints have a lot in common yes. they actually have a lot in common yeah but they they end up just disagreeing on like two or three very fundamental yeah. points and that's what it feels like with paleo and veganism right yeah. it's like yeah totally it's i mean it's like uh, i remember watching this sorry this is kind of related and kind of not, but what just came to mind is Judaism and Rastafarianism. I watched this amazing uh -huh. documentary many years ago about how like Paeus, Jew, Jews grow, Orthodox Jews grow Paeus. Yes, yes. Those are, those are the curls down yes. in front of the ears for yes. listeners, Paeus. Um, uh, speaking of tribes, Mark, I'm guessing you are a member of the tribe as I am. <laughs> I am a member of the Jewish <laughs> tribe. Yes, I am culturally and ethnically Jewish. Yeah. Exactly. Me as Reli well. Religiously, I I like to pray in the morning and in the evening with two of the most beautiful prayers from Jewish religion. Oh. Um, and, you know, I, I consider myself a Hindu. Uh, yeah, because okay. I've done more work on Hinduism and Taoism and some I Buddhism. I consider myself a Buju. You're so. a Buju. <laughs> Have you read Letters to a Buddhist Jew? No. Oh, it's a, it's a really great book. It's this text of a rabbi going back and forth with uh, a Jewish man that converted to Buddhism, but really wants to reconnect with his Jewish roots. And it's just this dialogue about really bridging the gap between these ideologies that ultimately 
like paleo and veganism come down to like conflict. There's so many aspects to it that are not in conflict. But anyway, where I was going is that uh, Jews, Gropeus, Rastafarians have their dreadlocks and both of those things come from just a different interpretation of the same text. Um, That's about not cutting your hair. Is that why I also like reggae? (laughs) (laughs) I love reggae. I would say I listen to like, I think 50% of the time that I spend listening to music is listening to reggae music. I mean, there's plenty of people in the Rastafarian and Jewish community who would argue that we come from the same people. That's so cool. When, yeah. I want, yeah, I want to dive deeper into Rastafarian culture. I don't know anything beyond what I just told you because this is from watching. No, a we're not going to dive in here. Years but, ago, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's just you know a different interpretation of the same, but the same philosophy. But so, so you have you've done some research on kind of emotional states as well, and how food and food behaviors and emotional states are related. Mm-hmm. Um. Are, do you think there's a predominant emotional state that is resonant in the vegan community and the paleo community? And are how do they, I'm just curious, I, this is not yeah. research, but yeah. I don't want to get so, you in trouble. No, you're not going to get in trouble, but there are, there are a few different emotional drivers that are similar between the two groups. And those are anxiety and loneliness. Mm. Uh, so I did, I ran a study last year. Uh, we, it was a survey of 1100 Americans across demographics, across ages, race, socioeconomics, everything. Um, and we were looking into people's food behaviors, but also well-being. So we asked things about, you know, life satisfaction, um, rates of anxiety, attachment to technologies, sleep, you know, time people spend in nature, um, and we found that those who adhere to these diets are also more anxious. Uh, they're worried. They're more worried about everything. There isn't even like a particular subject that they're more worried about. I kind of thought that I would see more concern about things like food safety and GMOs and not so much for debt or health issues. And that wasn't the case that these individuals were just more anxious overall. Um, they were also likelier to believe that their relationships are superficial that if they wanted to go on vacation, they would have a hard time finding someone to go with them. Wow. Uh, they were more likely to say that they were searching for meaning in life than the general population. Um, and I do think that diets today are a coping mechanism for both of those needs. I think that we live in an increasingly chaotic and uncontrollable world, and we all want to find solace in something. And being able to say yes and no to specific foods, I think is a really easy way for some people to put up barriers. And it is it is reflective of eating disorders. I'm not suggesting that every person who you know, adheres to a restrictive diet has an eating disorder. That's not the case at all. But I do think that it is a coping mechanism for a world that is increasingly feeling just simply out of control. Uh, you know, the other side of this is we are all lonely. I mean, I should say, it's not that like, it's not that like most people aren't anxious. Most people just in general are anxious, um, mm. especially these days. And most people are lonely. Um, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who worked under Obama or during the Obama administration, um, he said prior to COVID that loneliness was the next pandemic. That was the next health pandemic that we were going to be dealing with. 
Uh, and he's just published a book as well. I'll promote his book too. Um, <laughs> I actually, I don't know. The title is not coming to me right now, but his yeah. name is Vivek Murthy. Um, yeah. If you typed in Vivek Murthy book and loneliness. I'll, I'll, add, I'll, add, a, I'll add a link to, the, to that book. I, um, yeah, I mean, this is something that I've definitely looked at because as I thought through social media use and the rise of kind of smartphones and the correlation between that and youth depression, anxiety, and yep. suicide, it seems yep. like, you know, causation, unproven correlation, certainly. Definitely. Um, um, you know, I guess one thing that I, I do question is uh, there's there's this... Um, I'm blanking on kind of what the phenomenon is called, but it's what what you measure becomes the result. So I wonder if it has to do with the fact that we're measuring these things more, these concepts, you know, uh, loneliness, anxiety, depression. I look to kind of the boomer generation and I feel that a lot when I speak to folks in that generation, I feel a lot of them have unresolved conflicts and these these similar issues, but they just don't label them, and they're much more hesitant to talk about them. So I wonder if we're if we're like a generation, wondering out loud, if we're a generation that is actually clearing these feelings by bringing them to the forefront of conversation. And I see you nodding your head, so I think you disagree. I disagree. Yeah. Okay. Um, shaking my head. Yeah. Shaking. So, sorry. Yeah. Yes, no, no. 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 That's okay. I was just thinking. Was I? W- I actually, when you said that, I was like, wait, was I nodding? <laughs> <laughs> As, uh, we're both. I'm currently shaking and like, nodding to try to figure out what's what. <laughs> I, I don't know, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yes, you were shaking your head. No. Uh, yes. Exactly. I. I understand that theory, right? And that's, that's something that we're often things like like autism. Um, I've heard that frequently with anxiety and depression. People are like, oh, we're just, you know, we're measuring it more. Um, Suicide, I believe now, as of this year, is the leading cause of death for teenagers. Um, And uh, after doing, you know, a deep dive into this stuff, talking specifically to people in academia, um, the way that social media impacts our own sense of self-worth is terrifying. And when you look at the data about time spent, again, technology is tapping into our innate needs to feel loved and like we belong. And we have this little handy thing that like lives next to us now as an appendage where if we're feeling lonely, we feel like, okay, let's just open Instagram and go, you know, flip through it and I'm going to get some likes. Uh, And it turns out that it has the opposite effect that we want it to. Uh, I guess you could compare it to to fast food, right? It's like you're you're eating these things because it makes you feel good in the moment and because you need something to eat when in reality it's just making you sick. Yeah, it reminds uh, me of the Austin Powers quote. <laughs> I eat because I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy yeah. because I eat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, you know, oh, I've read a number of studies and things showing that, like, if you take a selfie and post it on social media, it actually makes you feel worse about yourself. Mm. Um, because you're searching for validation from a bunch of people who you don't actually really know or who really care about you. And the kicker is that all that time we're spending on social media is taking our attention away from the relationships that actually matter. We think that we can just text somebody 
or make a comment on social media and that that counts as connection. When in reality, on a physiological level, it does not have the same impact as giving somebody a hug or a high five or even just having eye to eye contact. Um, I think that the impact of, of social media specifically and, and phones, you know, in general, the internet on our, our ability to connect with others um, deserves a di- even more research than, than um, currently exists. And, you know, there is a caveat to this, which is if you are using social media to connect with people offline or to connect with people who you wouldn't otherwise have the chance of connecting with. Um, there's a benefit. Like if you're using Facebook or you're using Instagram or whatever, in order to figure out a time to meet up somewhere with somebody, or you're trying to meet those fellow vegans and you end up dating them, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a benefit um, to your well-being. It, the problem comes when you are spending an hour or more on these devices, liking, clicking, upvoting, posting, and when you could have spent that hour hanging out with your friends. Yeah, I think it's, I've definitely come at that question with a similar sentiment. And I believe that, I believe that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I also do find you know, I, I think there was actually a recent article that Charles Eisenstein wrote called Numb, which was based on this video of like somebody took video of, I think, their teenage daughter over COVID and how she was just fading, you know, mm-hmm. because there's that lack of connection. Like, what is mm-hmm. the cost of no more days of kids playing tag, you right. know, because they're not together? Like, we just don't understand yeah. how important that is to the development of a child and frankly, adults. And I think something I've thought about in the past is like in for, for, you know, um, heterosexual males, I think in our modern society in the U S I think we have a lack of physical contact mm-hmm. at, and that I think has a massive impact on sex and sexuality and, and the depravity of, of, um, sex culture for, for, young men mm-hmm. in America who are suffering from a lack of plutonic touch mm-hmm. and so much kind of uh, homophobia that's created at a young age through yeah. media and through, you know, just bullying that leads, and this is really a far field off topic, but it's things that I've thought about that leads men to be uncomfortable with physical contact at a plutonic level mm-hmm. for fear of being labeled something that they have mm-hmm. grown to you know, grown to be like, no, no, not me. Um, And I think that's actually a shadow piece of men's work. That's super important and why I love men's circles. And if you are listening and you're, you're um, a man that's looking for community, get into a men's circle and you can share some of these things. And for women that are listening, women's circles, the same. And then of course, mixed sex circles as well, where you're just kind of up ending some of this shadow. Um, I'm going on, but there was a point in that which was uh, now that we are forced to be apart is similar to the food conversation that you mentioned earlier, where the food is starting to um, food culture is being less about envy and jealousy, more about coming together. Mm-hmm. I do see value in, in this media of bringing folks together yeah. that are further apart, you know? So for sure. I mean, I'm it's so not all evil. to have, no, it's not, it's not all evil. Not at all. And, and, you know, it's the same thing of, you know, even without COVID doing face things like FaceTime, um, 
with family members who are not nearby is fantastic. Yeah. Um, Away from my family right now, I'm like nine hours flight from them. So, you know, it's, it's been months since I've seen them and FaceTime is the best we got. There is also this question though, like would as many people live far away from their family if we didn't have the internet? Yeah. Would you feel comfortable living so far away? I don't know. You know, it's, I it's, that. it's one of those questions that like we'll never, you know, we'll never have the answer for though, right? Because it's right. Right. There's so many reasons to why people move, and usually it's education, it's jobs, but you know, it's always you're always measuring, you know, the cost um benefit of of making that move. Um and I think right now, I cannot imagine the loneliness that we would all be plagued with. Um, without these these forms of of connection, um, I think they've absolutely become integral. I also think that social media as a whole has just become friendlier um, <laughs> since the pandemic. Um, and I don't I don't know if that's going to maintain itself. I do think you know, we're talking about you know having these communities and these subgroups of subgroups, but right now we are this idea of being a global citizen. I don't think it's ever been stronger than it is now, Um, which I I also think, you know, it has to do with why we're also having a racial justice movement right now. It's like, we are all human beings. We are all going through this together. We are all at risk. We are all suffering. And by the way, that group of people over there is suffering way more and there's no reason, legitimate reason for it. So what are we going to do as a global community? Um, so, you know, and, and I don't know that that even the racial justice movement would have the legs that it has without social media. Probably not. Um, it's Black Lives Matter has certainly thrived through social media these days, which is which is fantastic to see that organization, yeah. um, you know, well funded. Ex- and I'm excited to see how people start to use social media also with food culture to you know, live out these ideals as well to celebrate diversity of culture, diversity of talent, land, uh, things that grow in certain areas that don't grow in other places. You know, there's all of these things that can be shared online. Um, and I'm excited to see what, what the future of food culture so, is, but also how it helps us with these other, you know, kind of core societal maladies. Well, this is something that this is something that I believe you wrote about, um, which which is kind of more young people moving um, into kind of uh, farming, mm-hmm. brewery work, woodworkers. I mean, this is also like a reaction, I think, to the hyper connectedness of yeah. our society, and also enabled by technology at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you can learn how to build a table or whatever by going on YouTube or like, yeah. or learning how to bake sourdough bread, right? Like watch, watch a masterclass. Um, yeah, Ooh, I mean. I want was- some sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> Inception. <laughs> Ding. Whatever. My husband bakes every week now. Um, he's gotten oh, awesome. really good at it. Tell him to send me some recipes. <laughs> we were doing gluten-free stuff over here during the first few weeks. And then we were like, oh, every time we make a gluten-free banana bread, we eat it for the next two days. And like, it's pure sugar. So yeah. Yeah, it's not. Exactly. Say we did. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I just got off track. 
I'm now thinking about banana bread. I need to go get some lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's dinner time for me. <laughs> uh, uh, no, talking about kind of more more millennials, oh, young yes, people yes. moving to roles. Okay, thank like, you. Thank you for helping me get back on track. So no, that's what I do. Uh, one of the things that I was so fascinated by uh, during my research was this question of like, are we actually an overstimulated generation? Because I've heard that so many times. People are like, oh, you know, you have your smartphones and your TVs and you guys just get distracted all the time. You have no attention span. And once I actually dug into the research, what I found is that we're actually drastically understimulated. You know, our, our bodies evolved to have these different ses- sensorial inputs. And right now all we use are our eyes and like the little tips of our fingers. <laughs> Uh, and there, again, we're talking about, you know, what, what environment did we evolve for? What provides a sense of pleasure and meaning? And it's critical that we're using our bodies, that we're stimulating our senses, that we're also creating something tangible. You know, at the end of the day, this is something I struggle with. I'm like, what did I do today? I answered email. And then by the time I go to bed, there's more email. Like it doesn't make me feel like no sense of completion. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's cool writing a book because you know the book's done. I mean, hats off to you. I've been wanting to write a book for at least a year now and I haven't even gotten started. What a process. It's hard. Yeah. (laughs) We'll talk about it offline. I want to learn. I want to learn more. What a process. But yeah, I mean, there's, we, we now live in this world where it's like, you know, what'd you do today, honey? I made a PowerPoint presentation. I checked my email. Um, we all need to use our bodies. The other part of this is communing with nature and the, the visceral satisfaction of cultivating new life, of cultivating healthy soil, of like just the mind blowing process of planting a seed and watering it and watching it grow and bear fruit. It's just insane. Uh, and you're talking about how to create a sense of meaning in life. Like, is there anything more meaningful than feeding others and cultivating new life? I don't know. Uh, and I think in today's world where we have these rising rates of depression and anxiety and loneliness, you know, being one with nature, getting in tune with your body, um, sharing your creations with other people, it is an antidote to all of these uh, ways that we suffer in the digital age. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that is encouraging is, you know, we have seen an uptick in the number of small farms for the first time in like a century between the previous two census, um, ag senses, censuses. I don't know. Sen- uh, I think censuses. Sensei. Yes, Yeah. And so I, I really believe, I, I think like the, this is not my idea, but um, Naval Ravikant was saying that we're moving towards the Amer- the new American dream, which is the tech-enabled farmer. Mm. And I really believe that. I think as we see cities as being less, you know, we have this the capacity for remote work. We're able to go work from places that are more pristine, more beautiful, the, the mountains, the forests. You know, go convene with the land and spend time in front of your computer, but be there, mm-hmm. present with nature. Um, and I think there's there's something to be said about that. Uh, and I think that our disconnected um, mental state from our physical bodies, we've almost we've rejected the animal 
in us mm-hmm. in some ways. Not the animal brain, because that's what's getting tapped into by all of right. this stuff, the limbic right. system, the lizard brain. But we've but we reject the intuition, the yeah. as you said, the sensory inputs of our bodies. You know, but I spend so much time just sitting yeah. and typing. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think though that the again, like the the benefits of this <laughs> really unfortunate situation that we are are in uh, is that I think that a lot of those innate tendencies or uh, the things that that we just innately find satisfying, I think those are also becoming more clear to people. You know, the same way that racial injustices are becoming. Uh, more, more clear to those who haven't been forced into thinking about it all the time. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are also, for the first time, being like, good God, I need to get outside. Good God, I need to hug a friend. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like we have so neglected those parts of our humanity now that I think that there are, you can't ignore it. Like, you need to go see the sun. You need to go on a walk. You need to go on a hike. You need to get a pet. You need to make something. Uh, you need to see people in person. Um, and not to see them, but touch them. Uh, even a pat on the shoulder. Like, it's, you know, it's like you don't even realize these things that make such an impact on your well-being until they're entirely gone um and you know i hope i hope that this experience is also going to increase you know empathy as well for others who are who live lives that are devoid of these kinds of things on a more regular basis you know besides covid Mm. and of course food being the the great equalizer communing at a table coming together yeah i can't wait till i can do that again with people yeah super nice I'm I'm in a very lucky situation because I'm over here in Europe and we're not we they well I mean the cases are starting to rise again but um here in France but you know they opened up like 3 months ago now and people have been com- convening and connecting and so I feel that I feel when I speak to my friends back home you know or my family it's it's just a different energy it's still this state of oh it's bad yeah <laughs> I know I it's a strange situation I've been kind of wrestling with where it's like I'm connected to the States and really like still communicating with many people there. And yet I feel just in a completely different emotional level at yeah. the moment. And so it's like, how do, we, how do we hold space for the spectrum of experience that people are going through right now? All different levels and, you know, all different struggles. And, and also, you know, everyone's, everyone's challenges are real and everyone's, mm-hmm. you know, joys are real as well and should be celebrated mm-hmm. and, you know, not repressed for, for you know, participating in, in, the, in the potential sadness out there, but used to inspire as well and not to for, form envy or whatnot. And that's the balance of social media too, as we've been speaking about it is like this balance of, well, actually, do I want to share this? Because like, hey, I'm in a beautiful freaking place and it's awesome and I want to share this or do I want to yeah. share this to be like, hey, I'm in a beautiful place, where are you? Yeah. You know, and there's this subtle difference and it's really hard to navigate sometimes. Like sometimes when, you know, I'm posting something, I'm like, why am I posting this? You know, what's the, the intention? It's, yeah, I mean, I think I, I've been feeling the, the same way you know, 
often with food, right? You know, when I'm posting, it's a question of, you know, am I bragging or am I trying to, you know, more so I think lately it's been, I'm trying to kind of educate and be like, Hey, this is what you can do with the broccoli stem. Like don't throw it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I love I, broccoli stems. Yeah, <laughs> I've been also feeling like weird about this, the social activism online as well about like, are people posting a black picture because they feel like it's going to make them look better? Uh, like what? What is the motivation behind it exactly? Um, yeah, well, it's it's to be it's back to that in group out group, right? right. It's it's often performative activism, right? Um, exactly, and, and it's really challenging because I think we're all susceptible to that, and we all want yeah. we all have this innate desire, or many of us for the most part have this innate desire of being human that is a desire to do to be good. Yeah. Right. And so if the right thing to do is to post, then we post, even if it's not resonant or we don't understand the full picture, but we just want to, we want to be, we want that pat on the shoulder, as you said, of like, well done, you did the right thing. Yeah. I think, yeah. How can we back it up with real action? You know, and and we all play our part. I think what I'm hoping for as we emerge from this is that people will start to see that posting a meal is not a substitute for eating with friends. Just yeah. as posting a black box is not a substitute for getting in the streets and marching. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I really do hope at least in terms of, you know, food culture and well-being and what it is that we all need to to feel just okay, to feel loved, to feel like we belong, to feel safe, mm-hmm. uh, to fill our lives with meaning. I hope that it's becoming clear just how necessary it is that we convene with one another in person, that we take the time to be in nature, that we, um, you know, are able to find solace and a sense of autonomy in our lives somehow, um, be that through, th- through the ways that we eat or, or through something else. But, um, you know, I, I do think that this is laying bare some of those avenues to, to living, I'd say, a better, a better life that perhaps have gone ignored. I agree. And I think that's a beautiful place for us to um, start to unwind this episode. You know, I love the podcast format for that very reason, because I think it it gives us the opportunity to get to know each other and in long form and speak about some of these nuanced issues where social media doesn't allow that. With We've got probably like another five. Um, With that time, I'd like to open kind of the floor to you, Eve, and just first, thank you for coming on the show. Super appreciate it and appreciate everything that you've brought here today and all the ideas that you've shared with the audience. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to, that's top of mind, top of heart that you'd like to speak to? This was so wide ranging of a guy. <laughs> 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 we bounced around to so many different I things. Know, I love it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that I will kind of leave people with a, I don't know, something that I think about every day, which is how in this crazy, crazy world can we have impact and be activists? And for me, it's through food. It's through the foods that I choose to buy and eat every single day. Um, You can have an impact on the climate crisis. The most powerful thing you can do is to not waste your food. Um, 
you can have an impact on racial injustice by choosing who you buy your food from, um, both from on the farm level and on the restaurant level and on the brand level. Um, you can cultivate your own personal well-being through food. And uh, I just encourage everyone to, to think more critically about what they're putting on their plates, uh, what they're putting into their grocery baskets or their uh uh, you know, farmer's market bag, whatever, whatever your jam is. Um, because there's just this beautiful tool, this delicious tool that we have to, to work with, to make all sorts of great change. And I think it's understandable for, for people to feel hopeless these days. Um, especially in the States, to be frank. And, you know, we don't need to rely on, on institutions, in order to make a lot of these changes, we can force the change ourselves. Uh, so that's it. Respect. Beautiful, beautifully said. Um, thank you, Gani, for coming on. Appreciate you. And 11 month old cries weren't that crazy, by the way. We were, we're all good. <laughs> What's your daughter? I don't even think you mentioned your daughter's name. Her name's Liv or Livy. Liv. Yeah. Livy. Happy birthday, Livy. Oh, well, I'll tell her. <laughs> cool well thank you so much again and we'll catch you soon all right hello look up listeners one final note before we go thank you again for tuning in going forward we'll be releasing new episodes of look up every wednesday morning eastern time if you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one -on -one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in. And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. Mm -hmm.